the message with him out in the back as well. Um, for all of us that are here, I do want to encourage you to open up your Bible and invite you to do so to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We took two weeks off when it came to Corinthians to go and study Palm Sunday and also to observe uh, Resurrection Sunday. But we are back now at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, one of the heaviest books of the New Testament. It's one of the heaviest books of the New Testament here because now Paul is warning or he is now uh, teaching and he's exhorting now the church of Corinth, which is very much so like the church of now California that we see. So when he writes to the Corinthians, it's almost as if he's writing to the Californians <laughs> because of how liberal how it was at that moment and how it is today. And what he's doing here from chapters 1 and, and, and tonight, he's establishing something, teaching them these principles and these lessons. And in chapters 8 and 9, he stopped and paused for a moment and started to talk about Christian liberties. I think it's very important that we know when we talk about that subject, Christian liberties. Because when it talks about disciplining our bodies so that we don't become disqualified, when it talks about in chapter 9, and, and Paul mentions it in regards to our Christian liberties that should not make someone else stumble, there's also dangers that can take place when we are not cautious with our Christian liberties. There are dangers that will take place. And I'll tell you this, if we don't now are cautioned and we are not warned, if we are not careful when it comes to these dangers, it can cost us very much so from entering the promised land. He's going to take us back to the Old Testament here through 1 Corinthians 10 and teach us from lessons of the past. And some of the lessons from the past that we learn from the nation of Israel is that they were falling into the danger of overconfidence. Have you ever been overconfident in something and, and maybe you approach it a certain way or with a certain attitude and you found out very quickly that maybe you should have prepared better. But you were overconfident. The story goes of a, of a minister, a boy scout, and a, an engineer that were in an airplane, a small cockpit airplane. And the pilot comes out to the main cabin. He tells the minister, the boy scout and the computer engineer, he says, I have bad news for us. The airplane is going down. The airplane is going down completely and, and the news gets even worse. There's only three parachutes and there's four of us. And he says, you know what? Uh, I'm the pilot. I have a wife and kids at home. I'm in charge of this aircraft. So you know what, I'm going to grab a parachute and I'm on my way out, see you guys later, grabs his parachute and he jumps off the plane. Then the computer engineer stands up and he tells the minister and the boy scout. And he says this to the minister and the boy scout, the computer engineer, with the recognition now and the reputation of being the smartest man in the world. He tells now the, the minister and the boy scout, I am the smartest man in the world. The people down there need me. I'm the computer engineer, the smartest man. I'm inventing so many things right now. It is not good that I go down with this airplane. He picks up and he jumps off the airplane. Now you have the minister and the Boy Scout. And the, little, the minister looks at the Boy Scout gently and he smiles. And he says, you know what? Go ahead, son. I've lived a long, rich, blessed life. Go ahead and take, take the last parachute. I, I'll go down with the plane. It's all right. The little boy scout looks at him and he, 
grins now from ear to ear with a huge smile. And he says, relax, reverend. The smartest man in the world just picked up my backpack and jumped off the plane. (laughs) You see the peril of overconfidence. I'm the smartest man in the world. Picked up the backpack and jumped off the plane. Now tell me there is not a danger when it comes to overconfidence. You see, Israel was blessed in the Exodus. They were blessed tremendously. When the Lord told Moses to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And Israel was now led miraculously out of Egypt. And they saw the Red Sea part. Imagine seeing the Red Sea part. They saw the miracles of God providing in the wilderness, taking them to the promised land. However, however, although experiencing these spiritual uh, now things that were taking place, although they were had these spiritual privileges, they were disqualified from entering the promised land. Today, I want to wonder with you and with me, we want to ask ourselves, what is it that me and you are refusing to give up that gets in the way of entering the promised land? Is it something that you're refusing to give up? Is it something that you're someone that you're refusing to let go of that is prohibiting you from entering the promised land? Because the nation of Israel got comfortable and the nation of Israel compromised. We're going to learn from these lessons of the past in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1. And it reads this way. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud that passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And they all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they all drank of the spiritual rock that followed them. That rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased. For their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Can we pray? Lord, we thank you for just bringing us here, Lord, again to your house. And we ask, Lord, that you would teach us to prepare for the journey into the promised land correctly Lord we thank you from the lessons of the past from the lessons of the journey the pitfalls of the journey Lord that we are going to learn today and we ask if there is someone that we're unwilling to let go of if there's something that we don't want to give up that is standing in the way of us entering the promised land that you would remove that Lord so that we can enter you want to enter into your will for our lives In Jesus' name, together the church said, Amen. Amen. Now it says here in verse 1 of chapter 10, Moreover, brethren, church, brother, sister, I don't want you to forget. I don't want you to be unaware. This is very important for us to know. I don't want you to forget, and I don't want you to be unaware, brethren. Why is this important? Because sometimes we forget, and sometimes we're unaware. Now he's going to give us an example on how the nation of Israel was so blessed as they exited Egypt. Do you know that when you exited the world, which is a type of Egypt, God blessed you so richly. He made Bible study available to you so accessible. He made prayer available to you. Maybe He put people around your life so that they can encourage you out of that lifestyle. And He provided a way for you to know Him personally and intimately. 
He's made it accessible. He's made it very available for you to draw you out of Egypt. Now he's going to give us these examples on how the Lord did that for Israel. I don't want you to be unaware or forget of all our fathers or of our generations from the past. It says in verse here one, who were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Now remember in now Egypt, where they were coming out and back in Exodus, that the Lord guided the nation of Israel with a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And he says, do you remember that God guided them on their way out from Egypt? That God provided for them that cloud? You see, that cloud was a presence of God, was the presence of God. The cloud was the Shekinah glory of the Lord that was guiding them out of Egypt. And you don't understand what this is because that cloud also guided, that cloud protected, that cloud now gave them deliverance, it gave them shelter, it overshadowed them. It talks about in Exodus chapter 14 of that cloud. And it was because of that cloud that they were able to even go through the sea as described in verse 1. Because they were under the cloud. What was the cloud? The protection. What was the cloud? The shelter. What was the cloud? The guidance. What was the cloud? The glory of God now surrounding them. But it says here in verse 2, And they went through the sea and were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So with these are two examples. Referring back to the nation of Israel, that God guided them out of Egypt, just like God wants to guide you. He wants to guide you into the promised land. He wants the promises of His Word to become real in your life. And He will provide the cloud. And He will split the sea for you, absolutely. But it said that they were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. You would ask yourself, how were they baptized into Moses? What does that mean? Well, as they went through the water, it was a picture of baptism because Moses now was the leader that God had ordained for them. Moses was God appointed and Moses was God anointed. And we know for a leader to be appointed, he must be anointed. You can't put in what God has left out. And we know for sure that Moses was not only appointed, but he also was anointed. And Moses led them now under that cloud and through that sea. You see how God's special hand was there upon His people? Do you see how God loved them on their way to their promised land? That He gave them the leadership? That they experienced the hand of God, the incredible power of God, as God held up the walls of the Red Sea so they can cross on dry ground? Do you see how God provided not only that escape, that deliverance, but also that cloud to guide them the way that they should go? And it says now in verse 3 now, and they all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. How many of you guys can praise God that you have a rock even in the wilderness? How many of you guys can thank God? Amen. Can we praise God for that? Amen. Even in the wilderness, even when you didn't think there was anything to drink, the rock was there for you to drink from. You see that the nation of Israel went out in the wilderness and they're traveling around wanting to get to the promised land and they start to wonder, what are we going to drink, Moses and Aaron? But God provided that rock and it says in verse 3 that they all ate from the spirit, same spiritual food, which was the manna that was coming from heaven, right? The manna. But they also drank from that spiritual now rock and that rock that followed them in verse 3 was Christ. 
They all partook. They all were sustained by the spiritual rock. And that rock was Christ. See, the cloud guided. The cloud protected. The cloud now provided a way. While the rock now provided them food and nourishment. It provided for them. God is faithful to you. God is faithful to me. God is faithful to us. Even in the wilderness. Understand this please church. There is a rock that we can go drink from. And that is Christ. This is a remarkable display of God's love and power for his people. God has provided that cloud. And sometimes you think Lord I don't know where to go. Look at the cloud. Look at the glory of God. Where is he leading you? Lord we don't have enough resources. We don't have enough funds. Go to the rock and drink from there. Know that he's going to provide for you. Know that he is faithful. And he's recounting these stories. Even in Psalm 78 verse 15. David says this. He split the rock in the wilderness. And gave them to drink in abundance. Like the depths. You see, when they were thirsty, the Lord split the rocks and He never left them alone. He followed them. And just like He followed them, He's following us even through the wilderness. Even through our journey, He's following us. And you know what the rock is also doing? The rock is sustaining us. Aren't you thankful that we have a rock in the wilderness that can sustain us? Aren't you thankful that we have a rock that that can be with us through those times where we feel like this wilderness season is a dry season? But they're learning to feed off of Christ. They're learning to be provided from Christ. They're learning to depend on Christ, the nation of Israel. Because in the wilderness, understand this. They could do nothing to help themselves. They could do nothing to help themselves. But the Lord provided that cloud. And the Lord provided that rock. What does this teach us already? Some very important lessons. Number one, don't ever leave the cloud. Don't ever leave the cloud. What is the cloud? The cloud is His direction. The cloud is His protection. Don't ever leave the cloud that protects. Don't ever leave the cloud that guides. But then also, don't ever leave the rock. What is the rock? The rock is His providence. Don't ever leave the rock that sustains you. Don't ever leave the rock that satisfies you. And that rock is Christ. What did God provide? A cloud to guide and a rock to sustain. A cloud to guide and a rock to sustain. Lord, I don't know what to do in life. I'm going to follow the cloud that guides and I'm going to lean on the rock that sustains even through the wilderness. You see, God, even when He puts you in the wilderness, He will never leave you unguided or unprotected. He will never leave you unguided or unprotected. And sometimes we freak out, Lord, what is it that you're going to do in our lives? I'm in the wilderness right now, but the Lord will provide a rock. And that is Christ. And He will provide a cloud to guide you. And here, we're remembering that that's what the Lord does. He provides in the wilderness season. Verse 5 reads this. But with most of them, God was not well pleased. You think about how God blessed them so much. That God looked at the nation of Israel and says, I'm going to provide a way out from Egypt. I'm going to provide a way out from the bondage and the oppression that they're facing. I'm going to provide a way out. I'm going to split the sea. And maybe you've experienced that. Lord, thank you for splitting the sea for me. Thank you because you did not leave me in Egypt. But you made a way where there was no way. And I walked through that dry ground. You held up the walls of that sea, Lord. And thank you, Lord, because you guided me with the cloud out into the promised land. And thank you, Lord, because there was a rock that I can drink from. And you never left our side. And you sustained us, Lord. Thank you so much for all of that. 
But think about what he says now. God was still not well pleased with them. Why? Because they gave themselves up to other things besides the Lord. You think about how much the Lord has given us. And despite all the blessings that God has provided and the spiritual privileges that He's made available to you and to me still, and in spite of all that, we've turned our back on the Lord. And that's what He's going to tell them. When it comes to your Christian liberties, when it comes to your discipline, beware to not be overconfident, to not think because God provided a cloud, because God provided a rock, because God split the sea for you, that you can just live however you want and God has your back that way. No, that's not okay. Yes, the Lord has provided those spiritual privileges, but that doesn't give you the liberty or the license to live your life however you want. In fact, it should draw you closer to the Lord because of everything He's done for you. It's in verse 5, it tells us that God was not pleased with them. In verse 5 it says, For their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. What does that mean? It means that they were walking and going now to the promised land. Which was about a 10 day journey. And it lasted 40 years. <laughs> you think about that. 40 years, it was only supposed to take 10 days. But because of the hardness of their hearts, because of their rebellion, the Lord made them just go in circles and circles and in circles. I think about how many times we've made the journey longer than it's supposed to be because of the hardness of our hearts and because of the sickness, stick, uh, stiffness of our neck. How many times do you think, man, I, I probably would have already been there. But I keep being now stubborn when it comes to the Lord and obeying Him. I keep now rebelling against the Lord. And it said here that their bodies were scattered because God was not pleased. God said, I'm not going to allow those people to enter into the promised land. And it said that with most of them, God was not pleased. But this is an understatement. Because we know that with all of them, God was not pleased. How many people entered the promised land from those that stepped out of Egypt? Only two of them. And that was Joshua and that was Caleb. But the rest of them, every single day, people were dying in the wilderness because they were rebelling against the Lord. And the Lord said, you know what? From these people that exited Egypt, none of them are going to enter now the promise that only Caleb and Joshua. And their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. It was only Joshua's obedience and Joshua's faith that allowed them to enter into the promised land. You know what allows you to enter into the promised land, the purpose of what God has for you? You would ask yourself, I know, Lord, you have so much in store for me, but you know what allows you to enter that place? Obedience and faith. Without obedience and faith, you won't enter the place that God has for you. And a lot of times you try to enter that place, Lord, I want your promises. I want the promised land, God. Lord, I want your purpose for my life. But if you don't choose obedience and faith today, you will not, get, you will not receive promises tomorrow. And sometimes we get so confused. We say, Lord, give, it, give them to me now, Lord. I want to step into the promised land. Lord, I want you to build and fulfill everything that you've told me. No. We have to choose obedience and faith today for promises and eternal life that the Lord has promised us already. Here we see from verses 5 through verse 13 that God will punish with discipline. God does not allow us to, to now get away with sin. He doesn't. He's going to address our sin. He's going to discipline our sin. And we learn here from other people's sin what we ought to not do. You see, it's important when we talk about experience. Some people say experience is the best teacher. It is the best teacher, but we ought to learn from experience. And sometimes it doesn't have to be necessarily your experience. 
It can be somebody else's experience. Here today, we're going to learn from somebody else's experience. We're going to learn from the nation of Israel's experience. That, that they did six different things that did not allow them to enter the promised land. Six dangers that did not allow them to enter the place of promise that God had for them. Because they were overconfident. And because they were spiritually blessed. They thought, you know what, we can do whatever we want and get away with it. But we're going to talk about the six dangers that stood in the way from them entering the promised land. The first danger, and if you like taking notes, I would encourage you to write these down. Because the first one was the danger, here we go, the danger of ungratefulness. You see, God had blessed them so much. God had given them so much. However, they turned their back on the Lord. However, they did not receive all the spiritual blessings and the spiritual privileges that God had for them. They were overconfident. God loves us. God chose us. We're going to make it. And God said, wait a minute. In the promised land and through the wilderness, you're going to find out that you have to also obey me through that season to get to where I want to take you. And the first danger was the danger of ungratefulness. Having the Lord's providence, having all the spiritual blessings, they decided we can abuse the grace of God. We can abuse His providence. We don't have to obey Him. We can do whatever we want. We can set up for ourselves our own gods. We can now complain against the Lord. We can talk bad about one another. We can now rebel against our leadership. We, we can set up this idolatry and sexual immorality and, and do whatever we want. The Lord has chosen us to go into the promised land. Yes, maybe He has that in store for you, but it's up to you if you're going to get there or not. Are you willing to, to obey? Are you willing to apply faith? It's your responsibility now when we talk about these six dangers. Whether you're going to do the same thing these people did. They lived very selfishly. Very self-focused attitude and mentality. It was all about self. And today I pray that we would learn from these lessons of the past. So that it doesn't happen to you. So that it doesn't happen to us. The first danger was the danger of ungratefulness. They were ungrateful for everything that God has for you. A heart of gratitude. I'll tell you this. A heart of gratitude opens the door to more provision. The heart of gratitude opens the door for the Lord to bless you even more so. Because you start to understand that it's coming from God. And it allows you to stay close to the grace of God. When you're grateful because of something that someone's done for you, guess what you want to do? You want to let them know you want to stay close to that relationship. Because you have a heart of gratitude. First danger, the danger of, here it says, ungratefulness. Danger number two is the danger of lust. Let's read verse 6, and let's read in regards to what does it tell us about lust. Because it says, Now these things became our examples, to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. The first danger was the uh, danger of ungratefulness. The second danger, it tells us, is the danger of lust. Now you would ask yourself, what is lust? Lust is wanting something or wanting someone outside of God's plan for your life. Even if it's good. Even if it's good, it doesn't mean that God has it for you. You see, lust is wanting something or someone outside of His will. Lust is saying, I'm not satisfied with that rock. I'm not satisfied with the cloud. I want something else. 
And in Numbers chapter 11, it tells us of the story of where they were going through the wilderness and the nation of Israel started to crave now what they used to eat in Egypt and they started to crave and lust after something outside of the spiritual food that God was providing them. Have you ever craved for something outside of what God has given you? And maybe started to lust after something that was back in Egypt? Something that God delivered you from already? Well, they started to lust, and this was not part of God's plan. In the New Living Translation, it says, These things happened as a warning to us, so that we would not crave the evil things as they did. Are we craving today something that God maybe does not have for us? Maybe God's already provided for you. Maybe God already has sustained you. Maybe God's already guiding you. But lust means, I want something outside of what He's already provided for me. I want something out of His will. I'm not satisfied with what He's given me. That is lust. And you know the thing about lust is, is that lust never satisfies you. Only God does. Only the rock does. Lust instead leaves you more empty than you were before you wanted that. It leaves you more empty. It, it brings leanness to your soul. In, Isaiah, in Psalms 106 verse 15, David said this. He said here, and he gave them their request, but he sent leanness to their soul. You know what leanness to your soul means? Is that your soul was more empty than it was before you received that which you were lusting and craving for. The Lord now here, he gave the nation of Israel what they wanted, but it left them more empty. You see, when you go and you start to seek out for something outside of God's will, when you start to lust after things and you go and you chase and you pursue and, you, and you're, you're striving for these things, you know what it does? It leaves you more empty and it applies now leanness to your soul now where it leaves you wanting more. It's deceptive. The second danger is the danger of lust. But now as we read and go on in verse here 7, the danger of idolatry. And it goes on and says, And do not become idolaters as some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat, to drink, and rose up to play. What were the people doing? Number one, they were ungrateful. Number two, they started to lust in the wilderness. They started to want something outside of God's plan and perfect will for them. And because of that, they were caught up in sin. These were the reasons why they weren't led into the promised land. The third reason was the danger of idolatry. What happened? When it came to idolatry. Do you remember when Moses went up to Mount Sinai to get the Ten Commandments? What did Aaron do now? Moses is priest in second. What did Aaron do? He built for them an idol. He built for them a golden calf. The people started to complain, where's Moses at? We can't, we're not wait for Moses to come and tell us what God wants. We want to worship someone now. And they started to build now idolatry. A golden calf. Well, Moses was up there fasting. What was he doing? Literally, for 40 days, Moses was feeding off of God. <laughs> That's what really fasting is. He separated himself and he was feeding off of God when he was fasting and he was praying. But these people set up idolatry for themselves now. And because of idolatry, they were unrestrained. That means that they no longer wanted to submit to God. And they started to eat, to drink, and they rose up to play. That's what it says in verse 7, as it is written. The people sat down to eat, to drink, and rose up to play. What does this mean? That when they were worshiping these, this idol, 
They were living business as usual with no care in the world. Yes, we're rebelling against God. No care in the world now. No conviction. They were fully living a life of idolatry and they didn't even feel the conviction of God. They were rebelling against God and they, they drank, they slept, and, it said, and they rose up to play. You know what? That, that, that's the dangerous word, play. You know what? Because instead, idolatry begins here. When you're interested in more in playing than you're interested in praying. <laughs> that's when idolatry begins. And it'll begin in your heart. Instead of the people rising up to pray, they rose up to play. And I want to encourage you today, are you more interested in the playing than in the praying? Because there's a fine line that we ought to be very careful of not crossing. Of never substituting praying time for playing time. And what they did is they sacrificed and they made it comfortable and easy for them to worship. They made their own program and they built something using their own gold so that they can worship. Isn't that idolatry? We start to build something so that we can worship. Maybe it's a job. Maybe it's a car, a house, a family, a career that you're building. And, and you're building it with your own resources. And that becomes an idol because you admire it. You adore it. You're worshiping it. It comes between you and the Lord. And then that becomes an idol. That's idolatry begins in the heart. It begins, it begins when you're more interested in self than in your relationship with the Lord. We have to be very careful when it comes to idolatry. Because idolatry is a life that is interested more in self than in the Lord. And there's a big danger in it. There's a danger in stepping into a life of idolatry. Anything can be an idol. And just like it was an idol for them, it can be an idol for us. What is those things that are competing in our heart and in our mind between the Lord that are in competition always? When the Lord is saying, I want you to give that up, and you're saying, no, that I'm not willing to give up. Is that an idol? Are you willing to surrender it? Are you willing to let it be second place? Because God's not going to be second place in your life. He wants to be first place in your life. And it says that the number three thing that they were struggling with, that they, the danger that we see here was the danger of idolatry. Why? Because it started in their heart. They rose up to play instead of rising up to pray. Are you interested in, in, in prayer? When you hear about the prayer meeting, do you care to come? Does it evoke in you something? When, you, when, when, when it's time for you to go to bed maybe at night, do you separate some time to pray? Maybe do you spend some alone time with the Lord in prayer and reading His Word? Because prayer will really guard against idolatry. And the times that we're least praying are the times that we're going to allow our mind, our soul, and our heart to build idols in different places in our lives that will keep us away from the Lord. And that's what they're doing. They're playing instead of praying. Now in verse 8, look what it says when it talks about the fourth danger. And the fourth danger is the danger of sexual immorality. We have the first danger, the, the danger of ungratefulness. The second danger, the danger of lust. That the people wanted something outside of God's will. The third danger, the danger now here of idolatry. And the fourth danger, the danger of sexual immorality. Verse 8, Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. In one day, 23,000 people died because of sexual immorality in the wilderness. What is sexual immorality? Any sexual sin. Any sexual sin. But what in particularly did the nation of Israel do here? They started now to get foreign wives. And they started to begin these relationships 
with people that were not following the Lord. It said that they went and they started to have wives with the Moabite women. And the Lord told them, do not get wives that are not from the nation of Israel because they follow other gods. And if they follow other gods, you will eventually start to follow their gods. Do not become unequally yoked. It's so sad how you hear the warnings of the Lord. From scripture, the Lord told them, do not marry the Moabite women because it's going to cost you your relationship with Him. And even today, we see people that they don't care about just starting relationships with people that do not follow the Lord. It's going to allow you to backslide. And then we wonder, why have I regressed? How did I get to this place where I no longer feel a fervent desire for the Lord? So maybe you started a relationship with someone that God didn't want you to start a relationship with. Maybe you were thirsty for something outside of God's will instead of going to the rock. Maybe you stepped outside of the cloud and said, I'm going to find it my own way. I don't care. I'm not going to wait for the Lord to bring me that promise. I'm going to get it. And guess what it leads you to? It leads you to even sexual immorality. Because as they started to get these wives, they started to commit sexual immorality. They were unequally yoked. They started to commit their idolatry. And you know what they were doing in this sexual morality? You're lowering your standard when it comes to relationships. Why are you lowering your standard? I pray that today we would not lower our standard. And if we are in any way participating in anything that is sexually immoral, which is fornication, which is sexual immorality, any of those illicit sins, that we would repent today. Because as long as we're in those sins, as long as we're practicing, we're not right with God. We're not right with God. We can go through the motions, but we're not right with God. They're lowering their standards here. You know what that's called when you lower your standards? It's called a compromise. <laughs> oh Lord, I know he's not right with you. I know she's not right with you, but, but maybe I can make them right. <laughs> maybe I can win him or her over for the Lord. You start to compromise God's plan for your life. Sexual immorality, I'll tell you this. It's to be fled from it's not to be flirted with. I think when it comes to sexual immorality, what we want to do, let's flirt with it a little bit. And God's not called you to, He has not called you to flirt with sexual immorality. He's called you to flee sexual immorality. Today, can we choose to flee from anything that would draw us to sin? Even in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11 previously, Paul told now the church of Corinth, but now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother. I've told you not to even keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner. Not to even eat with such a person. You know what Paul is telling him? I don't want you to, when it comes to sexual immorality and idolatry, if somebody is named a Christian and they're practicing these things, stay away. Stay away from them because they're going to pull you in. It doesn't matter if they're a brother or a sister in the faith or this and that. If they're involved in these things, stay away from them. Don't even eat with them. Because they're going to pull you into these sins. They're going to entangle you in sin. And guess what? And you don't want to be there. Pray for them. Pray for their deliverance. But you see how ungratefulness. You see how lust. You see how sexual immorality. You see how idolatry gets in the way of you stepping into the promised land. Danger number five here. It's the danger of temptation. In verse 9 it says this. Nor let us tempt Christ. As some of them also tempted. And they were destroyed by serpents. It said that the people started to complain against Moses and Aaron. Back in Exodus 17. 
And he started to now demonstrate traits of unbelief. Or the Lord took us out from Egypt just so that we can die here. Or we're tired of this manna that's coming from heaven. Lord, give us something else. And they started to test now the Lord with their unbelief. And they started to tempt God. You, need, you think it's, it's very dangerous to tempt the Lord. To tempt God. To tempt His righteousness. To tempt His justice. To tempt Him. To see if He's not holy and he, see if He's not righteous by sin and by compromise. You know what's the, one of the most common ways on how we tempt the Lord today? Is by saying, I can sin and I can get away with it. That's tempting the Lord. And you'll find out very quickly that you ought to not tempt God. I can sin today and I can get away with it. I'll just go to church tomorrow and the Lord will just forgive me. I'll be right with the Lord. That is tempting the Lord. That's tempting His righteousness and His, His justice because God is a just God and He's not going to let you get away with sin. That's tempting Him. In verse 9, it tells us that they tempted the Lord and the Lord took snakes out in the wilderness and, and they, they bit these people. It was a plague. And all the people that got bit by the snakes that were tempting the Lord died that day. But those that looked now to the, now a sign that the Lord had given Moses and Aaron to the staff of Aaron, those did not die. Because they looked now to the staff. They looked now to the leadership. You see, today we ought to be very careful to not test or tempt the Lord. Through our unbelief, through our sin, through our compromise, tempt Him. Because when we tempt the Lord, it's a danger that's not going to allow us to step into the promised land. Tempting the Lord. First, number one is the danger of ungratefulness. The danger of lust. The danger of idolatry. Then the danger of sexual immorality. Fourthly, the, the, fifthly, the danger of temptation. But this last and final now danger is the danger of complaining. Have you ever been guilty of that complaining? Oh Lord, I don't want you, I don't want to be in this place in life. I'm tired of this. Lord, why is it that every time I try to do something, you can't bless me, but you bless them over there. Oh Lord, you took me out of Egypt, Lord, and I, at least over there I had three meals. Now I'm over here in the wilderness, Lord, and I have to go out and get my food every morning? Are you kidding me? <laughs> After the Lord is providing for you, you still complain? There's some people that complain, about having to go pick up the blessings that God gave them that. Lord, I, Lord, give me the blessing, Lord. But don't make me drive to go pick up that blessing. Lord, that blessing, you've given it to me, but the blessing is way too far. Lord, thank you because you have brothers and sisters that you've given me, that love me, that, that want to be there to support me. Lord, thank you for the ministry that you've provided. But Lord, the ministry is too far. And the people there, they live too far as well. <laughs> Complaining about the spiritual blessings. You know what they started to complain about as well? They started to complain about their leadership. I think it's so important as Christians that we don't complain about our leadership, that we pray for our leadership. You know how many times that we hear people complaining about our leadership? It's sad. You know, you think it honors God when we complain? When you complain about your boss at work, you think God, that honors God? When you complain about maybe the government, when you complain maybe even about those in power and authority, maybe when you complain even about your president, when you complain about your leadership at church, that does not honor God. It says in verse 10 here, nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. You know why they were complaining? In Exodus 16, it talks about how the people went and they wanted to stone Aaron and Moses, their leaders. And the Lord said, you know what? Aaron, Moses, move out of the way. I'm going to slay them all right now. <laughs> 
And, and Moses said, no way, Lord, don't do it. These are your people, Lord. And he said, move out of the way, Moses and Aaron. They're complaining against you guys, and I will forbid them to complain about against the leadership that I instituted. You see, when we're complaining against God's plan, we're really saying, Lord, your plan is not as good as my plan. I have a better plan than yours. That's what you're saying when you're complaining. You're saying that, that His plan, His will, as you gripe and as you grumble and you complain, you're saying, Lord, I, I'm not willing to surrender and to submit to your will for my life. That's what happens when we complain. In fact, when you complain, it also shows how much of a servant you're really not. Somebody asks you to do something, oh, why did they ask me to do it? Why did they tell me? Why did they give me enough time to prepare a plan? That's complaining. That sounds like complaining to me. You see, you ought to always be ready, available to serve the Lord. And, and when you start to complain, you're saying, you know what, I, I'm not okay. We're just stepping in, serving and submitting and surrendering to what the Lord has called me to do. The Lord is not okay with us, and the Lord can't not use us when our lips are filled with complaints. Is your, your lips filled today with complaints, or is it filled with surrender and worship and adoration? If we're always griping and complaining and grumbling, the Lord's not going to use us. And I'll even exhort you, even when it comes to your boss at work, even when it comes with your, with your schedule at work, when it comes to anything in life, don't be filled with complaint because that is a danger that did not allow them to enter the promised land. God's not going to bless you when you're complaining. In verse 12 and 13, 11, 12, and 13, we learn why He's named these things. Now in verse 11, it says, Now all these things happen to them as examples for us. When you see this take place, don't say, you know, Oh Lord, man, they don't know nothing, but we do. No, we don't either. They happened to them to help us as well. This is an example I want you to know. An example of ungratefulness. An example of lust. An example of idolatry. An example of sexual immorality. An example of complaining that will prohibit you from entering the promised land and getting closer to the Lord. These things, verse 11, happen as examples. Use them as examples so that you don't get caught up on these things. You know how many, you look around the world and you see so much taking place. And we say experience is the best teacher. Yes, it is. But we have to learn these valuable lessons. They happen to us as examples. And they were written for our, our munition. Why were they written? To teach us. Admonition means to teach. God wrote these specific examples in His Word through the Holy Spirit and His servants so that we can learn for our admonition, for our teaching, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Do you believe that today we're living in the last days? And if you believe that we're living in the last days, it should draw you now more to learn from these examples. To learn from the example of lust, of ungratefulness, of idolatry, of sexual immorality, of complaining. Even in the last days, he's saying, I want you to learn from this. I want you to learn to not allow these things. Learn and listen. Save yourself from the heartache. Save yourself from the headache. Did you know that most of the headaches and heartaches that we experience is because we ourselves got us into those positions? Is because we ourselves put us in that place. That most of the time when we're asking the Lord, take me out of here, it's because He didn't even put you there to begin with. It's because you yourself went outside of the cloud and said, I want something outside of His will. I want some, something outside of the rock. 
I'm okay with searching outside of what the Lord has provided for me. And these dangers start to come and pop up in your life. These things were written to teach us. In Romans 15 verse 4 it says, For whatever things were written before were written for our learning. These things that we're taking and learning in today, they're so that me and you can learn. So that we can learn not to, to flee from sexual morality. There's an opportunity for a sexual morality. Flee that opportunity of sexual morality. Of idolatry, get idolatry out of your face. Because you don't want that to hinder you from God's promises. These things are written before for our learning. That we, through the patience and comfort of scriptures, might have hope. You want hope today? You want to have hope today, Jesus? It starts with learning. Learning through His Word. It starts with obeying. A lot of times we feel like we don't have hope. It's because we're not going to the Word of God and leaning into the Word of God and saying, I'm standing on the promises of God. And when you stand on the promises of God, you can have hope for today and for tomorrow. It says in verse 12 and 13 as we end, Therefore, with that being said, and I'll tell you, verse 12 and 13 are something that you should write on your fridge, on your bedroom, in your car, wherever, and leave it there. I'll tell you, a few years ago, verse 12 and 13 were so heavy upon my life that I literally had to write it down on a piece of paper and just really put it on front of my desk in my room where I study every single day. And it's there to this day, this very verse. Because I don't want to ever feel because I'm a pastor or because I'm a disciple, because I'm a Christian, because I'm a student of God's word, that I am exempt from temptation and I will never fall. Absolutely, I am not exempt from temptation. I myself can enter temptation and I'm not guarding myself and so can you. And look what it says in verse 12. Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. It doesn't say let him who stands take heed lest he falls. This is the warning here. Let him who thinks. You think you're okay, but you're not okay with going there. Take heed lest you fall. This is an exhortation to the overconfident. Don't be overconfident. You think that you're standing. You think you're strong enough. Be careful. It's the moments where you think you're strong enough to handle that, that you've opened up yourself to temptation that is heavy and that you will potentially enter it and fall. Because when you enter temptation, guess what? You will fall. And sometimes we think, well, I'm going to enter into temptation. I'm going to flirt with the temptation because I'm strong enough. I think I'm strong enough. I think that I can dabble with that here and there. Take heed, be careful, a warning, it's danger. You're going to fall. An exhortation, a reminder for every day. Let him who thinks, take heed, be careful, a warning. To those who think they're, they're overconfident, take heed lest you fall. You know what that tells us? To not be around temptation. Sometimes we think that we can handle the temptation, that we are exempt from temptation. But in spiritual warfare, no one is exempt from temptation. Nobody is exempt from temptation. Everyone will get tempted. Do not be overconfident. You know how you overcome temptation? By staying in God's word. Because when you become overconfident, guess what happens? When you try to face the enemy overconfident, you put, let your guard down. And you no longer take spiritual warfare seriously. You think about when you see even somebody in, in a sports competition... And they take their competitor, right? They, they don't take him seriously. They become overconfident. What happens when they get to the time where they have to compete? They say, oh, I didn't take him seriously enough. Or the, that team, we didn't take that team seriously enough. We were overconfident, so they beat us. 
You see, here it talks about those that are overconfident. God's not a respecter of persons, and you will fall when you enter into temptation. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, it says this, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, he will also reap. For he who sows to the flesh will reap corruption. If you're sowing to sexual immorality, idolatry, complaining and lust and ungratefulness, you're going to reap from all of that, it says. But he who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap everlasting life. Will you sow today? You will reap tomorrow. Are you sowing into temptation? Are you sowing into temptation? You know what, what, what makes you think that you're strong enough? It's your pride. And sometimes we think we're strong enough. I think that I can go and surround myself with them and I think that I'll be okay. Yeah, that thought, that mentality is pride. It's saying, I think that I am okay, but I'm really not okay. In Proverbs 16, 18, it says, Pride goes before destruction and an haughty spirit before the fall. Pride always leads you to fall. Pride is what allows you to fall. It is your pride. And lastly, verse 13, No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. Now when it comes to temptation, don't ever think that it's new in your life. A lot of times we think, Oh Lord, why do you tempt me and you don't tempt them? Oh Lord, the temptation is only for me. It's not for anyone else. No, no temptation is new. Know that. The temptation that you receive, other people have received that temptation as well. In fact, Jesus was tempted as well. Do you remember in Matthew 4, when Jesus was tempted with his identity? He was tempted with his authority. He was tempted when it came to his worship. No temptation is, is uncommon. It's all normal to be tempted because we are in spiritual warfare. It has been said that temptation is like the harbor that Satan tries to, now like the rocks in the harbor where Satan tries to rise that tide up to cover the rocks, right? To make it sound like it's safe or make it appear as it is safe, right? Like covering those rocks, right, in the harbor. And then he crashes you against those rocks that we don't know that are there. That's how temptation is. Where it, sometimes it appears like there's no real danger. And maybe today you've been thinking and and, and, and pondering and participating in things that you think that maybe they're not real, really a danger. But they are. They're dangerous. And we should not participate in them. We should not have anything to do with them. And when it comes to temptation, it ends with a promise. Let's read that promise as we, as we end today. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able to handle. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Isn't that amazing? That God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can handle. Do you remember in Job's life when the enemy had to go and get approval by God to be able to try and tempt and test Job? Because every temptation comes across the Lord and said, the Lord says, you know what? I'll approve that temptation or I will not approve that temptation. The Lord is not tempting you. It's the enemy. But God has promised to supervise all temptation and to limit it to the capacity that you can endure and that's amazing that God loves us that much. It's like a mom taking their little son to the grocery store. And he says, you know what? I know down that aisle there's candy and he can't handle that temptation. So I will not take him down that road. And that now he, that changes as we grow, as we develop. We can handle certain things and tests and trials in our lives. But God will not allow a temptation to come your way that you cannot handle. And remember this. You don't, you don't have to not feel condemned when it comes to temptation. Because temptation is from the enemy. You have to not feel condemned. That's not from the Lord when you feel condemned because you're tempted. 
You ought to now feel the conviction when you enter temptation though. And sometimes we feel so condemned. Lord, I feel condemned because I've been tempted. No, but withstand that temptation. Do not enter that temptation. You know what you should enter in? Enter into prayer. Don't enter into the temptation. When there is a way for, to be tempted and to fall into sin, say, Lord, I'd rather today choose to enter into prayer than to enter into temptation because you have said in verse 13 of, Rome, of 1 Corinthians 10 that you will make a way of escape. God will always make a way of escape available for you. He'll give you the strength and the power to say no to temptation. And sometimes you say, Lord, why did you put me in this situation? I can't handle it. Yes, you can. He's given you the will, the power enough to say no to sin. Enter into prayer. Usually the way of escape is usually the way out. You see, you're being tempted with sexual immorality. Get out of there. You're being tempted with idolatry. Then, then make sure you make some changes in your life. You're being tempted with through complaining and all that. God will always provide you the strength that you need to say no. So that you can run to the arms of Jesus. So that you can run to the arms of safety. And you would know that's a word of comfort for you and for me. That He will not allow you to experience something that first He has not prepared you to be a part of beforehand. It says in verse 13, as we end here, it says, But with the temptation will also make the way of escape, that you may be able to bear it. He's making in a way of escape so you can bear it. He's made a way of escape. And the way of escape is Jesus. The way of escape is the cross. And today maybe you're asking yourself, Lord, I need that way of escape. Lord, let me run to the way of escape and to the, instead of the way of temptation. God wants to call you today to the way of escape, Jesus. So that, you don't, so that you are able to enter into the promised land. So that you don't have to say, you know what, I was stuck in the wilderness. And I never made it. I never made it because of these things. I never experienced everything that God had for me. I, I robbed myself of everything that God wanted for me. Of His purpose and of His plan. I never really made it. Because I allowed these things. God will make a way of escape. Let's pray. Lord Heavenly Father, we thank You.